everybody, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, to remove the stigma associated with addiction, and to offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And I also want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, FHE Health, because this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, and FHE Health is a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. Now, folks, I want to introduce to you Kelly Thrush, and Kelly came to me, oh, through a series of people, and I want to say it was actually uh, Hillary, who, those of you that listen to this podcast, she was, uh, I think, a couple episodes ago, and she was talking about, um, you know, her life is uh, an elite swimmer, an elite athlete, and I met her through uh, Charlie Engel, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, and Charlie, as you know, is an ultra runner, and Charlie was getting ready to do uh, an event called the Penguin up at Ashley Treatment Center up in Maryland to raise money for that organization. And he was going to be doing that by running for 30 hours, uh, having 30 hours of continuing continuous movement to celebrate 30 years of recovery. And so all of these people were people that I met. One, you know, through Charlie, then I met Hillary, then ultimately I've met Kelly. And you know what? It's a really big ultra marathoning crowd. So that seems to be the theme here. But Kelly and I connected. Uh, We talked, have a lot in common. Kelly has a a tremendous story of experience, strength, and hope. And, you know, guys, life is tough. Recovery is tough. Kelly's going to talk about that. He has a compelling story. I know you're not going to want to miss this. Just listen to the things that he's doing with his life now. Uh, I'm going to throw out this weekend, I celebrated 10 years of continuous sobriety myself, and I never thought that was possible. And my life has gotten so, so much better. And I think that's what you're going to hear from Kelly as well. And so with that, Kelly, it's an honor to meet you, and I'm glad that you took the time to come on the show. For having me, I'm I'm excited to be here. Congrats on ten years. That's a big day. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it really is. You know what? All that means, hey guys, when it comes to this business of how long those of us have been in sobriety, all it means, and the only reason why we pointed out is to demonstrate to you that it can be done. That it can be done. The way that I got ten years really was just focusing on the one day that I was in. I, I never really thought about 10 years. I thought about just get through this day and then the next day. But uh, it is, I, I'm proud of it. I, I would say of all the things that I've done in my life, and I've done some very difficult things in my life, but getting 10 years of sobriety ranks up there with the toughest of them. So uh, would you agree with that, Kelly? Ab- absolutely. And and you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's, you have to take it day by day, moment by moment one step in, you know, in front of the other kind of deal. You can't look at it, um, you know, your first day uh, of sobriety, you can't go, man, I wonder what it's going to look like 10 years from now. It, no. it just doesn't work like that. No, not at all. Not at all. But but thank you for uh, your, your support on that. I really do appreciate it. And uh, those of you that are out there, I'm just encouraging you, it can be done. And that's uh, that's just evidence that it can be done. But, but Kelly, you know, your story, you and I met, and uh, I know that 
Hillary pointed you my way, and, and we talked for a while, and I just think that you have a, a tremendous story. Could you, uh, first of all, share, share with us your sobriety date, and then walk us through what happened, and then ultimately, how did you get this far in recovery? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, my sobriety date is, is January 8th, 2018, so I'm about four and a half years in. Awesome. Congrats. Uh, yep. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, and yeah, it was a, a long road to get to that date and fairly traumatic, and then it's been uh, fantastic since. I mean, I don't want to, it's been tough in certain areas, but it's, gosh, it's been good since then. So, um, well, kind of leading up to it, I guess we'll, um, start back at teenage years, I suppose. Um, I played competitive baseball, uh, as a kid. Um, I was, you know, I would say above average at it anyhow. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, it was my life's passion, you know, growing up. And so through high school, um, I actually didn't drink at all in high school. In fact, I was the kid everybody knew that didn't drink. I would go to the parties with all my friends and, you know, the, the other folks that were there. But, um, you know, I'd typically leave early or I'd have, you know, a practice that, that sometimes I even organized at five in the morning on a Saturday or six in the morning on a Saturday. Um, and really didn't hit that party scene uh, until I got to college. Uh, and really my, my freshman year in college, it, uh, kind of opened up, you know, you're not living at home anymore. I'm living with four roommates who are all baseball players. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of supervision and structure in my time away from the ball field and away from school. Um, so yeah, it kind of took a little hold and then, um, you know, kind of, I would say escalated through college where it got to be more routine, but it was still, I don't think was to the point where it was abnormal or dysfunctional. Uh, at that point, really until I started in my adulthood uh, and I started running bars and restaurants. Uh, and then it was a big part of the culture uh, within within bars and restaurants. And so, um, you know, once I was I was running a kind of an upscale sports bar here in town and then also up in Colorado. And um, yeah, it wasn't unusual. I mean, we, we worked hard. I mean, it wasn't uncommon to work 50, 70, 80 hours a week, um, you know, and the bar closes at two in the morning. So you hang out and you drink until six or seven in the morning. Then you go home, take a nap and you do it all again the next day. And I did that for the better part of 10 years. And so, uh, as that sort of escalated, uh, really, um, into my thirties, I mean, I had some health problems, you know, not directly related to alcohol, uh, up and, you know, through my twenties, but I had things like diverticulitis, which was, ended up having a third of my colon removed in my late twenties as a result of it, or maybe I was 30. I don't remember exactly. Um, but, uh, had a third of my colon removed cause it was infected. Uh, and that had to do with diet and lifestyle, uh, and drinking was part of that. Uh, and then back in, uh, 2012, I got my DUI, which I am not terribly proud of, but ended up having one of those. And you would think that would have been a good enough wake up call that I needed to stop. Um, but it wasn't, you know, I continued on, on drinking, uh, at that point. Um, and then a few years, uh, down the road, uh, I actually, um, or right around that same time, I should say, um, I actually was trying to get out of the bars and restaurants simply because of the lifestyle. It was, you know, nights and weekends and holidays, uh, missing time with the family. Uh, so I ended up starting, uh, selling insurance kind of for myself, uh, and that's really when, when my addiction started to escalate, because at that point, then, then it was just me and me. Um, you know, I, I didn't have an office that I had to go to every single day. Um, I was out on the road. And so, um, I, that, that's really where it really started to turn in from maybe a quote unquote, you know, drinking problem to a, a full fledged physical addiction. 
until it really started to escalate into 2015. Um, and I got to the point where, so at that point, uh, as far as my family was concerned, minus my, my wife at the time, um, you know, I told everybody that I wasn't drinking. And so I was hiding it and I would get those, you know, those little shooters, uh, that you can buy at the convenience store or the liquor store. Um, that was my drink of choice at the time because I could do that in secret, you know, and hide them in my pockets or my bag or the car or wherever, wherever I could hide them. Uh, and on Halloween of 2015, um, it was put to me, uh, that basically I need to, you need to stop drinking or, um, I'm, I'm out of the house and getting kicked out and we're, we're separating. So I did on November 1st of 2015, um, I stopped and I went to my first uh, meeting at that point and I went to AA meeting, uh, meeting, uh, and I went to a few that month. Um, and I actually was able to not drink for, uh, over a year at that point. I actually didn't drink. And I don't, one of the things I'm, I'm quick to point out too, uh, when I talk about this is I don't say I was sober in 2016 because I, I wasn't in the, you know, the true essence of the word. Um, but I didn't drink. Um, I did maintain and to, um, abstain, I should say for that, for those full 13 months, but like is a very, very common tale. Uh, after I got about a year, I thought, perfect. I am cured. I no longer <laughs> have a drinking problem Yep. and I'm going to go out and drink like a normal person. Uh, it's, a, I mean, I'm sure you've heard it yep. in your travels. That's, that's a tale that, that we hear pretty often. Uh, and so I went out and I bought a couple of little shooters again. And for that particular day, I, I, I suppose I did drink like a normal person other than I didn't tell anybody. It was completely in secret and all by myself. Um, but yeah, I had two drinks that day. And then, uh, the next day I actually don't think I drank the very next day. Um, cause I wanted to see if I was in fact able to, to control this. And then it didn't take long at all. Within two to three weeks, it was my, my addiction came back with a vengeance. Uh, and it was um, almost to the point where it was worse than it was in 2015 at that particular point. And, and now, now at that point, my my wife at the time, and, and it was affecting my jobs, it was affecting my family, it was affecting my relationships for the next probably six weeks until finally my wife said she had it and and uh, asked me to leave the house. And so, at that particular time. Um, my grandmother was actually living with us. Uh, she had a, a pretty serious accident and fallen and broken her hip and couldn't be at home anymore. So she actually had lived with us for a couple of years. And thank goodness uh, she still had maintained her house uh, that she had lived in for probably 65, 70 years at that point. Um, because otherwise I wouldn't have had anywhere to go. Um, you know, most of my relationships at that point were were pretty estranged uh, with my definitely with my friends. Um, I didn't I didn't have a very big circle of friends, and then my families they were they were strange. You know, my siblings, um, my parents, um, my mom and I were still pretty close, but um, she had her own issues with alcohol at the time too. So it was more of a codependent relationship than it was a father or a mother son. So uh, moved into grandma's house with grandma uh, at that point. And that's when it really started to spiral. And this is now 2017, uh, probably February, January, February, 2017. And, um, yeah, I, I, I spent the better part of that year at the wrong end of a bottle. Um, and it was pretty rough and it was pretty apparent too, with, with most of the folks around me, especially anybody that was close with me. I mean, I did a pretty good job. I think at, well, I think anyhow, you know, 
Um, as we all, as all, I can't say all, as most alcoholics do, we think we're hiding it when really we're not. People just aren't, they just aren't saying anything to you. Uh, until finally kind of the climax to all of this was in, uh, January of 2018. Um, it would have been January 7th, which was the day before my sobriety date. Um, we were my now, uh, at that point, I, my, my divorce has gone through and so forth. And I'm dating a woman named Jamie, uh, who is now my wife. Uh, thank goodness I had met her during that stretch too. Uh, you'll, you'll kind of see as I go through the story, you'll see how, how vital she is to this, uh, well, to my life, so to speak. So, uh, anyhow, and on that Sunday, we were moving furniture for a buddy of mine. Um, I didn't feel good. I thought maybe I was hungover. Uh, I thought maybe I, I still had, I'd been sick a few weeks before. So I thought maybe I still had a touch of the flu. Um, but I didn't feel good. And then that Monday, uh, I felt a little worse. I felt bad enough that I actually didn't drink that Monday. Uh, and then even on that Tuesday, which would, would have been the first, you know, two days consecutive uh, in that last year uh, that I put together where I didn't drink at all. Until finally on Wednesday the 10th, I was at work. Uh, at this point, I was managing a, a restaurant, a dining room here at the retirement community where I currently work now, too. Um, but I was managing the restaurant up there and my boss came up to me and she she looked at me and apparently I had been the talk of the management team because I looked like crap um and she walked up to me and basically said you know Kelly here's your options uh you need to go to the hospital and I kind of looked at her and said I don't the hospital what are you what are you talking about no I'm busy I got stuff to do and she said very plainly she goes you're you're just flat not listening so here's your options and she kind of laid them out for me uh, and basically said, I will give you a ride. You can find a ride or I can call 911. Mm-hmm. And those are your options. Well, what I was in denial of was I was completely jaundiced at that point because my liver and my kidneys at that point were starting to shut down on me. My liver was shutting down. My kidneys kind of got drugged down with it. Um, but uh, my eyes were yellow. Uh, my skin was yellow. Um, and I refused to see it. I mean, I would look in the mirror and I know I looked like crap, but but I didn't know I looked like that bad. I just thought, eh, you don't look good. It'll pass. You'll be fine. Uh, until it finally escalated where people around me took notice and, and said I had to go to the hospital. And so uh, I actually, still being as stubborn as I am, um, didn't even I didn't even go to the hospital. I, I got in the car. Um, I called Jamie at that point, who was actually, for her job, she was actually out of town at a, a, about four hours away from us. Uh, and I told her what had happened and that I had been sent home to go to the hospital and she dropped what she was doing and was going to meet me there. And I tried to convince her that I'm fine. It's not that big a deal. Um, but she dropped what she was doing to meet me at the urgent care down by our house. So I didn't even go to a hospital. I went to, you know, this little urgent care and I walked in and the doctor took one look at me and kind of chuckled and said, what are you doing here? I, I can't help you. You need to go to a hospital, like an actual hospital. And so we did. Uh, and what was end up, what ended up diagnosing me, not really on that particular day, but as the time went on, was uh, stage four liver failure mm. um, with cirrhosis. Um, and it took him a couple of weeks to get there because that first week that I was in the hospital, I was actually detoxing. Um, and so my recollection of that first week isn't necessarily the truth or what happened because I was not exactly all there. Um, Jamie will tell stories that I was 
you know, hallucinating or um, wasn't able to um, wasn't able to stay with the conversation. You know, I would I would say random things that were thoughts that I had, but they didn't fit into whatever we were talking about. Uh, and so finally, well, I can't say finally, but during those first few weeks, um, as I'm going to the, you know, I was started at one hospital cause that's where my insurance wanted me to go. Um, plus in my mind, I was trying to get back to work. You know, I, I thought for sure that I was, you know, they were going to give me an IV, you know, maybe some pills and send me on my merry way. Um, I really didn't realize how, how bad it was at that point. And so I bounced a couple of different hospitals uh, during those first couple of weeks. And the really the only common theme that each one of these hospitals had was um, the doctors basically said there's nothing they could do for me, that I was too far gone, um, that my liver was beyond repair. Uh, and so we ended up going to a liver specialist here in town, um, you know, supposedly the best of the best kind of doctor that we had finally got referred to through via our, that would have been after our second, my second hospital stay. Um, and when I say hospital stay, I mean, I was in the hospital pretty much consistently that entire time because I couldn't walk. I, I was as, as big as a house with ascites, which is the fluid that you retain. Mm-hmm. Um, my pants and my clothes didn't fit. Um, I couldn't walk any distances because I was completely uncomfortable and out of breath and with all this fluid. I mean, I don't know how much I weighed at the time, but it was probably 50 pounds worth of fluid. And so she actually had wheeled me into uh, this specialist for our second appointment um, because the first one was kind of an intake. We did blood work, filled out all the paperwork, and uh, we were in his office, and um, he did. He looked at both of us and said, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. And you have, based off your numbers, you have about a month, maybe two. Um, so you need to get your affairs in order, um, which is a very, that's a hard thing to listen to at age, at this point I was age 38. Wow. Um, yeah, and they're telling you, you got a couple of months left. Holy cow. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. About two months is what they had kind of diagnosed me with. Um, Thank goodness she was there because she basically looked at the, the doc and said, and her words were, that's not good enough. Uh, and then she wheeled me out of his office, you know, and, and so we went, ended up going back home. Uh, and so at this point, I'm not in the hospital. I'm, I'm back at actually grandma's house this particular day. And it's, well, I guess it would have been the next day, I think. Again, my recollection and what took place, timing isn't always, isn't always accurate, but uh we were at my grandmother's house and I'm having a rough day um, to the point now where Jamie has now called uh, my mom and my dad uh, over to my grandma's house to figure out what we were going to do. You know, cause now we've gone through three hospitals here in town. Um, there really is only one option left. Well, I guess there's two, but really only one option left. Uh, and I refused to go. I was told him, I'm like, no, I'm going to ride this out. I'll be fine. I'll get better. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't stay awake during that particular conversation, it was mid afternoon. I mean, it was probably one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and she actually at that point too, had called both of my brothers over, uh, to grandma's house. Now it's a whole family affair, uh, as I am now asleep in the middle bedroom. Um, cause I was completely uncomfortable. I couldn't sit in the chair any longer. Um, and that's finally when they basically said, look, here's your options. We are going to drag you to the university hospital here in town, uh, near campus. Um, or we're calling an ambulance, um, which would have been my third ambulance ride in this last six weeks. So anyway, so I finally, well, 
reluctantly agreed. I guess I can't even say I did agree, but it was reluctantly agreed. And they, you know, poured me into the car and took me down to the ER uh, at the university hospital. And that's where I spent the next two and a half months uh, was in that hospital. I didn't get discharged after that uh, until after um, towards the end of it. So I get to university hospital and it was the same, it was the same stuff from all of their doctors too. It was, you know, the, the liver specialist would come in and the, you know, the kidney specialist would come in and internal medicine and pretty much every doctor we talked to was, uh, I'm sorry, there's, there's just nothing we can do for you. Um, except for two doctors that were, that were there. Um, and they were both internal medicine doctors. Um, and I still to this day, I'm not sure what they, what they saw in me. Um, but they went kind of, they put their reputations on the line to convince the transplant team to take a risk on me. Because at that point, the only thing that was even in the cards was I needed a full liver transplant. And the transplant team was reluctant because the the way transplants work, if you're, if you're a recipient, a transplant patient and you need one, um, that you have to be the right amount of sick. You know, there's a, there's a sweet spot in there mm-hmm. because if you're, if you're not sick enough, then you can wait because there's someone else on that transplant list that, um, that can use that organ. Uh, or on the flip side of that, if you're too sick, well then shoot, you're, you're probably not going to survive the surgery. Um, it's called a meld score specifically when it comes to, to liver transplants. Um, and it's a way that they rate where you're at on that scale. Uh, and I was at the very highest end of this particular, um, these particular numbers. And so the second part that really, um, you know, hindered my, my getting, getting on the transplant list, um, was I was, I, I did this to myself, you know, it was alcohol abuse that put me in this particular situation. Uh, and so, so anyhow, if you are, for me, I kind of put myself in that situation where, you know, I abused alcohol for the, for more than a decade. You know, I drank every day and a lot, um, for years. I mean, when it was at its worst that year of 2017, I really couldn't tell you how much I drank. I could tell you it was anywhere between 10 and 15 of those little shooters. Uh, and then maybe a beer at night or two. Um, I wasn't, I didn't eat regular meals. I mean, I was just drinking until finally my liver quit. And so the transplant team didn't want to take a risk and put me and give me a brand new, you know, liver if I'm just going to turn around and, and abuse it again and ruin it. And so these two doctors had to put, you know, their reputation on the line uh, to convince the transplant team that I was worth the risk. And so what happens a lot, at least here at this particular hospital, um, most of the folks that are on a liver transplant uh, waiting list have a series of steps, you know, that they have to complete uh, prior to getting on the list. Well, I didn't have that kind of time. So I had to agree to do all of those prerequisites post-transplant. Things like going to therapy, being sober for a year, um, going to what's called smart recovery, um, which is kind of the program. And I'm sure we might touch on that here in a bit. Um, But going to all those things for a full year before they'll even put you on the list. Well, at this point, we're now talking the end of February, beginning of March, and and I didn't have that kind of time. If you see some of my scores that came back through, there was <laughs> there was there was one doctor uh, who I had a very interesting relationship with. Um, he walked in one of the mornings, like they did every morning, and he's looking at my chart, um, and he's looking at all of my numbers, and and so one of the numbers in particular is called creatinine, 
levels. Uh, and your normal creatinine level out there is is a one. That's a, a normal number. Mine was seven plus and sometimes got into the eights and halves and nines uh, on occasions, um, which is not good. Um, I, I should have been hallucinating. I shouldn't have been of sound mind. And there's lots of other symptoms that kind of come through, but he's looking at my charts and looking at my numbers. Um, and this is before I'm on the transplant list. And, and he basically says, he looks at me and goes, why aren't you dead? Uh, and I kind of <laughs> chuckled at him and I went, thanks. I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> Try yeah, like, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's a compliment, Doc. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that's so not, not exactly a rapport builder. <laughs> no, no. Well, there was actually, there was one, <laughs> this is, a, I don't know if I've told this story in public, but so he, uh, the same doctor had come in. Now, one of the problems that I had during that time, and, and hopefully I won't get too grody or graphic, um, but like I couldn't breathe through my nose because of the amount of blood clots and, and junk that was in clunked and clotted in my nose and so but because of the risk of bleeding because when your when your liver is failing you can bleed out very easily because you're you know you're, i mean there's multiple different problems but part of it is that your blood won't clot platelets aren't being produced and so forth and so um he caught me one time i was picking my nose trying to get this stuff out of my nose but i actually at that point because i knew i wasn't allowed what I do, would do is I'd take a, a tissue, you know, a Kleenex, and I'd soak it in this saline solution that they give me. Uh, and then I just jam those things up my nose to kind of loosen everything so that I could clear out my nose so I could breathe. And so he came into my, my, my hospital room at one point, and I'm doing this, and he looks at me and goes, what are you doing? You know, because he's worried about me bleeding, and then he's really worried about infection uh, that I could possibly get. Um, and it just uh, right then and there put me in just tears. I mean, I just started sobbing um, and he immediately saw, you know, what kind of reaction I had. Cause here's this, you know, grown man. I actually had a birthday at that point. So I was 39. Here's this 39 year old man with two big old Kleenexes hanging out of his nose and ugly crying um, because he, he quote unquote yelled at me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, him and I had a, an interesting relationship. Um, so anyhow, so about, uh, I'll say probably two weeks um, after they had decided, yes, they would, they would take the risk and put me on the, on the transplant list. You know, during those whole two weeks, Jamie, who is, who is a vital part of this story, because I mean, she really truly is the, she is the reason I'm alive um, because she was advocating for me at the hospital. Um, but anyhow, after those about two weeks uh, of her finally going through insurance and getting me ready to go and they finally got me on the list. And within about, um, I'd say probably four or five days, um, they ended up finding a liver for me, uh, that was a match. Um, so it was, I was extremely lucky in that regard. Um, and it was close to me. I, I believe it was up in Phoenix. So, which is about two hours away from where I live. And so, um, they had to move quick, uh, on this particular one. So, you know, as soon as they found um, that liver for me, my surgeon and his right hand took the helicopter up to Phoenix uh, to kind of vet this liver, this organ, um, because that's how new it was. It hadn't even gone through all the different criteria to make sure it was a viable organ. And during that time, my body crashed. Um, you know, I was um, bleeding from anywhere and everywhere that I could. 
um, out my nose, out my mouth. Um, they actually decided to, while my doc, my surgeon was up in Phoenix to start getting me prepped for surgery. So they wheeled me down to the ICU where I spent the majority of that evening. Um, coughing up blood in, into a, a Jamie's holding this blood bucket on the side of me. Um, and I'm in and out of consciousness, um, to the point where the nurse actually, who was taking care of me looked at her and basically said that this isn't, this isn't sustainable. You know, if he, if he doesn't, if something doesn't happen here soon and in the next few hours, he's not going to make it. Cause at that point I had had, um, 20 something, I believe the number is 27 and I probably should look that up, but, um, 27 units of blood or transfusions prior to my surgery. Um, I ended up having 40 something overall, um, throughout the whole surgery. So basically my entire body's worth of blood had been recycled uh, mm. at that point. I had lost it all and then replenished it with new stuff coming in. Uh, and so, uh, as the, I'm in the surgery or in the ICU getting prepped for surgery, my doctors, my surgeons, and the team are flying back via helicopter. Meanwhile, they're sending the private jet up to Phoenix to pick up this organ because you have to be a, a certified courier for, for a, a live organ. And so they sent a private jet up there to pick it up and to bring it down. So I was actually, I don't know that I was actually open on the table while the liver wasn't there, but it was just about that kind of timing because I wouldn't have made it through the, I wouldn't have made it through the night. I definitely would have made it through the weekend, um, on that particular time. So, and that kind of leads me to the turning point in my life. Um, because the, the next part is what I, I use to kind of guide me to just about everything really. So the surgery itself took about 14 to 16 hours, something along those lines. Um, obviously I don't remember. That's what I've been told. Um, and then I woke up when they woke me up, I should say, and kind of took me out of anesthesia, still in the ICU, um, still hooked up to all of the different, you know, machinery that, uh, I can be hooked up to. I've got the, you know, the ventilator down my throat still. Um, and my eyes opened and my entire family's there, um, around my bed while the majority of my family's there, the, the people that could be there. Um, which was overwhelming because my relationships with them, even during this time, even though they were there for me while I was in the hospital, they weren't good relationships because I had burned all those bridges through my, through my drinking. And so when I woke up at this overwhelming, um, insurmountable feeling of, of gratitude because I had, I had made it through to the other side, you know, um, I woke up. It was, it was amazing. Um, and everybody was there to, to witness it. Now the complication comes in is because simultaneous with all that gratitude was gosh, this, this soul crushing guilt and shame that accompanied it. And I couldn't have one emotion without the other. The moment I, in those first 10 seconds of this, I am so overwhelmed with gratitude and you got to think it's, you know, juxtaposed with this, this guilt and this shame that is, is just crushing is the only word I can think to describe it. Um, and they went hand in hand. Um, but those first 10 seconds of waking up really, um, man, they changed my life for from now until forever or from then until forever. 
And so uh, the next few days in the ICU were a little rough. Um, I had to have a couple, three different procedures um, um, done again. I had a, a stitch in my liver itself had come loose. And so I was actually bleeding internally at one point. So they had to open me back up and clean that back up. And then a week later, um, they actually had discharged me uh, one week after, um, after my transplant, which is great. You know, you think that's fantastic. Well, I wasn't home 12 hours, maybe out of the hospital, but I had developed an infection, not in my liver, not in the incision, but somewhere in my bowels. Uh, I had developed an infection that was extremely painful. Uh, and then I started spiking a fever of, you know, a hundred and something. Uh, and so I was rushed back to the hospital at that point. And then I spent another month uh, in the hospital after that until they finally discharged me for good. And so after, uh, when I finally got out of the hospital, there was a, a few things that, that took place. One, um, I was still, they pump you so full of fluids. I mean, I, I don't know how much I weighed, um, but I was, a, it looked like a water balloon, really. You could push my finger, I could push it into my thigh and it would leave an imprint, you know, a half an inch deep into my thigh because of the fluids I was pumped with. Because part of the problem, not only was muscle atrophy, you got to think, I spent four and a half months in the hospital. I mean, I hadn't used my legs hardly at all. Um, and because your liver is responsible for producing lots of proteins and enzymes and things of that nature. And when it's failing, your body will start to consume whatever it can. And so my muscles were gone. Um, I had no muscle tone. Uh, I actually couldn't grow a beard for quite some time because, uh, you know, I'm assuming the proteins in your hairs or however that works biologically, it, it took that away too. I mean, I couldn't, I'd shave and I was baby faced. But when I got out of the hospital um, that last time, you know, I couldn't walk. Um, I had to use uh, a walker for any sort of short distances. Um, I'd use a wheelchair for any longer distances. Uh, I, my family had to agree for 24-hour care. I had to have somebody with me that was capable of taking care of me uh, for 24 hours a day for at least six weeks. Um, and that we were going to, the docs wanted to see how that went. Uh, and then I had obviously multiple doctor's appointments back. I mean, it was, you know, four or five days a week. I was back at the clinic, uh, visiting with my doctors, but the two biggest pieces of my, well, I guess I should say three, um, cause there's my physical recovery on learning how to walk again. Uh, and I'll we'll kind of get to that, that here in a sec, but the, the, the hardest part was the emotional recovery because now, you know, a week out of surgery, um, I'd go back and I'd have to see a therapist uh, through the transplant team. And it got to the point where I asked her if I could see her twice a week rather than once a week because I was a wreck. I was an emotional wreck. Um, prior, I, I hadn't gotten sober with any sort of tools at that mm -hmm. point. I mean, I, I, I walked into the hospital. That's why my sobriety date is when it is. Not because I walked into a meeting, but because I was in a hospital and was forced. I didn't have a choice. Um, they weren't. No one was going to smuggle in shooters for me into the, you know, the ICU. And so I had all of these emotions that from this traumatic experience of the last four months that I had zero clue how to deal with. I had no coping skills whatsoever. And so I'd go into these hour-long sessions, and my therapist would ask me one question, and I'd break down crying. Um, that actually happened when I was in the ICU after surgery. Now I think about it, there's, you know, my people would come visit me after my transplant. Um, 
and, and I would, I'd, I'd, I'd just tear up and I couldn't help it. I was overwhelmed with all these emotions. My, my father-in-law, they actually flew in uh, from California. Uh, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law did. Um, and they were in the ICU and they were visiting with me and it was a pleasant, pleasant enough conversation. It was perfectly fine. And, and he kind of put his hand in my leg and said, you know, don't worry. I'm, I'm taking care of your chores at home and pulling the weeds or whatever he, whatever yard work he was doing. And it broke me down. And what broke me down was I did this to myself to the point now where my father-in-law has to take care of my responsibilities. That's how bad it got. Like I'm not even able to, to pull weeds in my house, some simple act like that. And I just broke down crying. You know, a childhood friend uh, who worked at the hospital, she was actually you know, high up uh, in the ranks there. I think she was the director of surgery, I think is what her title was. And her mom, who also worked at the hospital, who knew me as a kid um, way back when I was wanted to be a major league baseball player or be the president of the United States or whatever my you know fantasies were back then. They knew me then and now they get to see me now with a liver transplant because of my drinking. And that just, it would break me down. And so that shame and that guilt really was overwhelming. So I had to work really hard with my therapist on some coping mechanisms. And then also in, within smart recovery too, because they, they provide you with some tools um, on how to work with all of that stuff. It was rough. That summer emotionally uh, of 2018 uh, was rough. I was in a pretty dark place for quite a few months. And you wouldn't think I should be. I have this brand new gift and second chance um, that in my mind at that time, I completely did not deserve. Um, Somebody else needed that liver, not me. You know, one of the questions that I still kind of grapple with is that somebody's child died that day. You know, some, some mom out there lost her son or daughter in, in a random act and mine didn't even though I put myself there. Mm-hmm. So those were some, some hard things that I had to deal with in, in that next few months. So simultaneously with all that, trying to figure out physically, how am I going to get better? And so what I ended up doing kind of what we were touching on earlier is instead of making these, you know, I can't walk, how am I ever going to walk again? I just, I broke it into little chunks and so I would walk around the house um, without a walker. I'd use furniture to hold on. I mean, my doctors didn't appreciate that very much, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> they, they, got, they got to know me very well and, and, and kind of the, the uh, uh, like I said, the stubbornness that I hold. I always say if, if, if everybody's got a superpower, that just happens to be mine. <laughs> it's that I will see this through. Uh, and so um, then I would use my walker and my, my first goal uh, was I would wanted to go all the way to the mailbox in the front of the yard and back. Uh, that was my first goal. We'd be able to walk out there. And so I'd work on that every day, just once a day, uh, unless I felt good. Um, Cause some days were better than others. Uh, and maybe I would do it twice. Um, plus it was summertime in Tucson, which is hot. And so I didn't spend a whole lot of time outside. Um, and so then once I got the mailbox kind of down, then I would walk to the neighbor's house. Uh, and then pretty soon I was walking to the stop sign. Uh, and then I would, you know, do the circle, the whole block. Um, and what I would do at this point, Monday through Friday, I would be at my grandmother's house um, so that my mom could help take care of me so that Jamie could go to work because she had missed so much work in the months leading up to this. Um, and her, her company was great. They allowed her to work from the hospital in times or, or let her leave on her lunch break uh, and those types of things. Um, but then I would go home on the weekends. Uh, you know, she'd pick me up on Friday after work and then I'd go home for Saturday and Sunday and I'd come back on Monday. Plus, that way I could get to and from doctor's appointments. 
but it had these little goals and these little steps, you know, um, and these little milestones, uh, as I started to recover, um, you know, some of my fun ones that I talk about the, the one, the first one was taking a shower all by myself. Um, <laughs> Cause you got to think, I mean, that was a big, big day when I did that. I stood up in the shower by myself, actually used shampoo and soap on, on my own skin, on my own body without any assistance. Um, that was a pretty big, a pretty big day. Cause prior to that, you know, my, my mom was helping me up and down off the toilet. Um, you know, my, my Jamie would help me in the showers, um, those types of things where I, I just couldn't do it on my own. Uh, and so, um, I'll tell you a funny story. This is another one. I haven't told this one in public. I do tell this story often, but I haven't told it in, in public before. So, um, one of these days I was at grandma's house, uh, and I was sitting in the living room and I had to go to the bathroom. And so the way the house was set up, the, the main bathroom was kind of in the front of the living room there. And so I'm, I'm hurrying and I'm using air quotes when I say hurrying, I was going as fast as I could, but it wasn't any sort of speed records. And so I get all the way to the bathroom door and I, the door's locked and grandma's in there. Oh, great. Well, that's not going to work because I don't know how long she'll be there. So, um, as I turn around, there's a back bathroom kind of through the kitchen in the back room around the house. And so I'm, I'm hustling as fast as I can possibly go, uh, to get around there. And as I took that corner outside of the kitchen, I fell. Mm. Um, now the problem is when I fall at this particular stage, I couldn't get back up on my own. I needed somebody to come get me. And so I'm trying with all of my might to get back up off the floor because I have to go to the bathroom. It's no longer a, no longer a choice. You know, I have to go. And so I finally, I get back up somehow or another. I, I get myself back on my feet and I make it to the restroom. Okay, great. Crisis averted on that particular day. So the next day, uh, I, I'm back home the next day. Sorry, Jamie, for telling this story. Uh, and so um, I'm taking a shower and I'm in the bathroom and, and Jamie's helping me in the bathtub and in the shower and I'm standing there and she starts scrubbing my rear end so bad it hurts. I'm, I'm damn near in tears. It hurts so bad. And I'm telling her, Jamie, this hurts. You got to stop. Like, I don't know what you're doing, but it hurts. And she goes, Kelly, you are a mess. I have to clean this up. I have to clean this up. And so finally, after doing this for probably two or three minutes, I finally told her, James, you have to stop. And so she kind of stops and she looks there for a second and she goes, wait, did, did you fall? Because it wasn't a mess. I was bruised where she was scrubbing. Uh, and, and she's rubbing. And it's not coming off. <laughs> and it's not coming off. And, you know, and finally oh. I looked at her I'm like, yeah, I fell yesterday. And she goes, why didn't you tell me? And I said, could you yell at me for not falling and not telling anybody? And so it was a big oh, thing. Oh, so my goodness. In that moment, it was a big moment. We laugh about it now. But uh, in that moment, it was a pretty big one. So, Oh, uh, man. It's, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know what? Um and I'll tell you, to go from that to what the listeners need to know is, uh, Kelly is now an ultra marathoner. So how do you go from not being able to get sure. up and having to go to the bathroom to um, you're running like, uh, what are, you, are you doing the 100 milers now? What are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I got, I got one coming up here in September. 100 miler? Uh, I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a shot yep, for a belt buckle up in, uh, actually David Clark's, it's his race. I don't know if you know that name. Uh, he's big in the ultra world and the recovery world. Um, he has since passed a couple years back, but he had a race that he put together in Colorado. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to give it a What's the name of the race? See what happens. It's called uh, American Heroes Run. Oh, uh, okay. Colorado. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Uh, on September 9th, we're going to give it a shot and see how it goes. Well, you know, um, 
so you, you go from not being able to go out to the mailbox or ha- a hard time going to the mailbox or going to the bathroom sure. for that matter to um, basically 100 miles is a lot. Uh, a lot of people don't like to drive that far, but you're right. running that yeah, far. That's one of the favorite phrases. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, like, you know, I don't like driving that far. So, well, what ended up happening, so the next two years, you know, progressively get a little better. And actually, so what ended up happening, I guess I should back up a little bit. So during that summer, um, I took up hiking. Uh, it was my my safe place, I guess, it, it, and I used it therapeutically. One for physical recovery because you know you're you're hiking up the and we have a bunch of mountains here around Tucson. Uh, they're gorgeous. And so there's one particular canyon that I would go to two or three times a week at this point, and it would be just me and the dog. Um, me and the mutt would go, and we I would hike. You know, as I got healthier and healthier, I would hike uh, off the beaten path, so it was just me and him. Um, and I could go there, and I could um, reflect and think about, you know, all the different things that I either wanted to do or had done and really just try to heal out there, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. So, and what ended up happening in October of 2018, uh, I was hiking up this one Canyon, uh, it's called Florida Canyon, uh, out in Santa Rita's. Um, and it's a tough hike, especially for me at that particular stage. I mean, it's, it's pretty straight up. And the round trip hike is something like 14 or 15 miles. I don't remember exactly now at this point, but I was just about at the top. Uh, and I called my sister, uh, who lives in Colorado, who her and I are extremely close with her that I'm close with. And, uh, I told her what I was doing and I, I was pretty proud of myself that day. And I wanted to show her the view, uh, where I was, you know, overlooking the Valley. Uh, and so she says to me, she goes, well, Hey, why don't you, uh, why don't you run a half marathon with me next month? And I said, what are you? crazy there's no way i can't run a half marathon it's 13 miles like there's no way i've never ran a race in my entire life i was not a runner uh, i played baseball you know we ran 90 feet and we took a break uh, <laughs> and then we run another 90 feet and we take another break um and so i didn't run for anything and, and i didn't even enjoy running and so i was like you're nuts and so we're sitting on the phone and she goes well kelly how long is your hike today and i said i don't know it's probably 14 15 miles and she goes well there you go and you're going uphill for half of it and i went huh i guess i am so I signed up when I got home and I ran a half marathon that next month with her. Um, and it was great. I mean, I was not fast. I'm still not fast. Um, but it was what an unbelievably special day for the two of us to do that together. Um, it was fantastic. It was, it really was, but the running bug really didn't hook me until probably a year later. Uh, and kind of out of the blue, um, I don't even know how it, well, I guess it would have been a year and a half later. I, I don't know how it came across, but somebody recommended me uh, Charlie Engel's book, um, Running Man. Yeah, yeah. And so I read that book cover to cover in like a day and a half. Um, I mean, it, I was turning pages. We were actually traveling at the time, um, and I was turning the pages, and it didn't take me any time at all. And when I was done with it, um, I looked over at Jamie and said, I'm going to run 100 miles. That's the way. That's, I have a new goal. And this is when, and that was two years ago, uh, in June of 2020, uh, when I decided I was going to do this. And so, uh, I started going out and running on my own with really no idea of any of the stuff that goes into running form or pace or training plan or any of that stuff. Uh, so then I ended up calling, uh, who is now my coach who just found out I'm running hundred miles. If she's listening to this, sorry, Brandon, sorry, Adam. Oh, um, oops. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Oh, this is literally uh, the it, announcement that well, you're. It was supposed to be a 24 hour race up in Colorado, which was what the entire plan was. 
until the day I actually signed up and I looked at the two options and I went, never mind, I'm going for it. Uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Sorry, coach. Uh, All right. Yeah. Sorry about that, coach. Uh, I'll, I'll report back and let you know how it went. Um, so anyway, uh, but I called them uh, and they have a running club and a, a training, uh, you know, ground for runners called Southwest Endurance Training. Um, in fact, that's where I'm headed as soon as I'm, I'm done chatting with you. And they really kind of set me on the path and taught me how to run and actually enjoy it uh, is a big part of it. Because a lot of people that say, I don't like even running that far, they, don't, they just, they can't enjoy it, you know. Uh, and there's different, I mean, we can go down a, you know, different path as far as that goes, as far as running is concerned. But that's really how it kind of started. And so I set these goals that I want to run 100 miles. Uh, eventually, Leadville is going to be in my path at some point, uh, which is one of the, you know, pinnacle races. Um yeah, when you mentioned I, I you mentioned Colorado, I, I yep. immediately my first thought was Leadville. Uh, that's that's yep. the big one that I'm familiar yep, that's with. That's the big one, and I'll get there. I'm not I'm not good enough yet. Uh, I got I still got some work to do, but I'll, I'll get there. I'll, I'll be on that on that up in uh, uh, Leadville here sometime in the near future. Well, you know what? And just for the sake of time, and what I what I was thinking is because uh, I'm interested in a couple of things with you because you have a really you have a compelling story. And one is, as you know, I'm an AA guy, twelve step guy, mm-hmm. and um, and some other programs. And we've talked about their programs on uh, on this podcast. And I know you're a smart recovery guy. And so why don't we do this? Mm-hmm. Let's just I, I want to kind of you know wrap up your your health and the the health conditions that your drinking cause you and then can we do this can i have you back on uh soon and then uh, talk about the program that you chose that has gotten you into recovery can we do that can we bring you back on absolutely yeah, yeah. no i'd love to i love talking about smart you know yeah. the, the more options that are out there for folks the better that's absolutely correct you know, there's one recovery program doesn't work for everybody you know and so if the more then there's tons out there yeah, and you can um, and you can do. Yeah, I love talking about it. Yeah, and you, and you can incorporate like these days. I incorporate elements from different programs. But with that, just to sort of close out for today. So you you went through this health crisis, and here you are. You can't even get around the house, and 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 so you you know the listeners know you're now looking at a hundred mile races. Okay, so there was a lot. Obviously, uh, take us through is, is quickly. How you went from, hey, I can't get to the bathroom to now I'm going to go do the Leadville 100-mile race. I mean, obviously a lot of determination in there. And there's a, there's a lot of application to the determination because those of you that are trying to get sober, you know it is a day-by-day, sometimes hour-by-hour journey, just like um, a long race is. And, um, you know, really... If you don't want it, here's what I tell people: If you don't want to get well, you're not going to get well. And if For you sure. want, yep. if you want to get well, you still may not get well. It just depends on how hard you work at it. Recovery is hard work, folks. It is hard work. Would you agree with that, Kelly? Absolutely, and, and it is, and it's a day by day, and you have to want it. Um, you have to want it, and yep. you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you have it, but I, you know, I, I promised. You know, a hundred thousand times that I was done drinking. Oh yeah, yeah. But absolutely. it was always, but it was always for an outside influence, is because my wife didn't want me to, or my mom said to stop, or, or my boss said, you know, you smell like a bar or whatever. Um, you know, and I meant it at those particular times. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't lying to him, but I, I wanted it for the wrong reasons. It wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it, it just never worked until now. I was faced with a choice it was here's the deal you can stop or you can die and those are your two options mm-hmm. uh and even then 
you know, I was stubborn enough to think, well, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's kind of just how it went until finally it was, no, Kelly, like, this is serious. Like, you're not going to make it. Um, and so as far as how the recovery part of it went, I mean, it's, man, life is great now. I mean, it really, truly is. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not all rainbows and sunshines. There are days that are, are, are worse than others. Um, but two of the big things that I talk to folks about going through recovery is there's, there's a couple of different part components to it. One is setting that goal. You know, for me, it was a hundred mile race. Okay, great. And that's so far off in the distance and it shoot, and it may not happen in September. I don't know. We're going to find out. Um, but you just have to do with what's right in front of you today. And so there's actually a video that I, I put out on uh, for a lot of times that uh, Jamie had videoed me on my first run that summer when I was hiking at some point, I think it was early in my recovery, but me trying to run, shoot, I made it 50 feet. Um, and my legs couldn't do anymore. Uh, and there's a video of me herky jerky motion, you know, running down, uh, down the road by our house. But that was the start of it. That was, the, that was the beginning point. And so now I had a baseline. And so now we're just going to, we're going to go a little bit further. Um, you know, we're going to try a, a little bit further of a run or now I'm going to try and dial in my nutrition, um, so that I can put better fuel into my body. Um, and those types of things. And so you focus on it on a day-to-day basis. Um, and it works just like that with recovery. It works just like that with a, a training plan for your runs. I mean, it's, you, you look at what do I have today? You know, you can only run the mile that's right in front of you. You mm-hmm. can only, you can only, you know, if, if um, with, you know, in my case, drinking, I can only just focus on, I'm just going to be sober today. I'm going to make sure I hit my pillow tonight. My head's going to hit the pillow and I'm not going to drink today. That's the goal. Yeah. You know, and then, we'll, and then we'll roll through tomorrow. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because as before we came on the air here, I, I was telling you that uh, YouTube face, they, they feed you different videos and um, I, I'm being fed these special forces types of videos. I don't know why that they're sending that to me. <laughs> they must sense that I want, right. I'm interested in that, but I'm too old to go back into the special forces. But uh, and that being said, um, two things. I watched a video on um, some people that made it through Navy Buds training, which is absolutely horrendously bad training, tough sure. training. And then uh, British SAS. And what's interesting is, so you have this uh, uh, Navy SEAL and this Br- British SAS commando, and they're both talking about this. Both are notoriously horrendous um, selection process. It's not even training. It's it's selection, right. meaning you're you're just being selected to go into even more horrendous training, right? right? But but it's interesting. Both of these guys said this. You're, you're talking about training that will start with like 280, 300 people per class, right? And they might graduate 12. I mean, just let that sink right. in for a minute. It's that bad. But these guys that had made it through said both said very similar things. That the Navy SEAL said. You know, the reason why I think my classmates didn't make it through is they, they would think about the totality of the training. Like, uh, BUDS is six months long, and they just get overwhelmed with, oh, my God, this this day is horrible. This was just in, in every single day is going to be like this. And they let mm-hmm. that sink in, and it just overwhelms them, and they tap out. And then the other, the the, the British uh, SAS uh, commando, the, the guy that made it through selection, they have this, uh, a lot of their, tra- they do a lot of um, like force marches, much more. It's just like heavy weights and then very long periods of marching with this heavy weight through the mountains and, and things like that. And he, he just said that all he would, all, all he would focus on would be the guy in front of him. And his goal was, I need to get in front of that guy. And then... 
as they're marching along, okay, that guy in front of me, I need to get in front of him. And that's all he would, he wouldn't focus on the line of guys or he wouldn't be thinking about the distance. It was the guy in front of me, the guy in front of me, mm-hmm. get the guy in front mm-hmm. of me. And it was interesting that, so the Navy SEAL and the British SAS guys, and, and again, this is the most difficult training on earth, a military training on earth. And they both really brought it down to just focus on what's in front of you. Just focus on the here and now. And recovery is kind of the same way, isn't it? Because I know how I got to 10 years was not focusing on 10 years. I focused on today. That's it. That's it. And it's funny how these concepts are very similar concepts in other people doing very difficult things. You know, maybe your thoughts on mm-hmm. that and you can take us out. Oh, sure. And that, and that's that's the key to it is you focus on what's right in front of you. Um you know, and that's all you can focus on. Otherwise, I mean, and there's, there's all sorts of different, um, you know, cliches for it. You know, you know, there's only one way to eat an elephant. It's one bite at a time. It's the same idea. You know, it's, it's focus on whatever the task at hand is right in front of you. So for me, it was, I'm going to walk to the mailbox or if it's in recovery, it's, I'm just going to make it to noon without drinking. And then if that's the case, um, or maybe it's not even noon, maybe it's, you know, these next five minutes, or whatever it might be, but that's that's the whole thing. And so, one of the messages that I try to pass on to folks is I'm I'm talking with whether they're new to recovery or or new to running or new to whatever, um, is, especially in recovery, I suppose, is that um, if you can make it through what seems to be those overwhelming odds in front of you, if you can make it through those next few things right in front of you, man, I promise there's good stuff on the other side. Um, I couldn't imagine what life would have been like right now. Um, you know, chatting with you, I mean, there's no, there's no good reason why I'm sitting here talking with you today, being able to, to, to hopefully reach some folks and, and inspire them to, you know, do a little bit better in whatever it is that they want to get, get better at, whatever it is they're passionate about. Yeah. And I know, it, I know it's inspiring people and I, I know that people that are new to recovery, I, I want you to really just listen closely to what Kelly is saying, and I will echo it. You know, two guys that have a little bit of time behind them, and that's all it is. It's just a little bit of time of sobriety behind us. It is difficult. Recovery is difficult. You have to want it. And you take suggestions from people and implement those suggestions and then focus on what is right in front of you. Um, you know, I've often said... Uh, people have heard me speak in public, um, talk about the, the advice. Like, here you are, you're getting ready to embark on, you know, this very long run, 100-mile run, and you've never done it before. And you're, here you are in a running club, and you're, you're, you're talking about dialing in your nutrition. And I'm sure the people that you're running with, they talk to you about, four, hey, this is how you run, because a, a very, very long-distance runner is going to run differently than a sprinter. They Even the form is different when you look at them. The equipment that they use is different, on and on and on. And you know what happens a lot of times in recovery is that the people that have been around for a long time give advice and then the new people come in and I'm not being critical. I was, I was that person that would come in and just go, yeah, I hear you, but I'm going to do it my own way or that's not how I Mm -hmm. do things. And then we don't get, we don't get results. But imagine if you will, that, you know, I dabble a little bit in triathlon. Um, My only purpose in triathlon, Kelly, I I, I realize is, you know, I, I do other people favors. What happens is I enter races just to make sure you're not in last place. That's why I do races. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I just, uh, 
I just want other people to feel good about themselves, so I enter, so you won't be right. in last place. All right. You know, but right. if I'm going to go, let's say I'm going to go do an Ironman triathlon, and let's say I have, uh, just pick a big name, you know, David Scott. David Scott, he's like an icon in the Ironman triathlon world. He's sure. won yep. more, he might have been matched now these days, but for a while there, he was, uh, he he had won the most Ironman triathlons than than anyone else, right? And and so imagine if Dave Scott sat down with me and said, "Hey, Mike, let me tell you everything I know about uh, doing an Ironman triathlon." Imagine if you will, if I sat there and said, "You know, I hear you, Dave. I hear you about you know your advice on diet and training and all that." But let me tell you, let me tell you how I do things. And right. could you imagine Dave Scott looking at me like I, I don't know about you, dude, but I would. Um, you might want to take a few notes about because I've done a few of these, Mike. You know, maybe maybe you haven't heard. Um, this, you know, but I'm walking in like yeah. I know better. But we do that in recovery. We do that in recovery too, mm-hmm. where we go and we hear people give suggestions, and you're like, "Yeah, I'll just do it my own way," and it never works out well. Now, how do I know that? Because that's exactly what I did. It wasn't until I started taking advice from people who had had some experience with this. That you know, guess what? It's it's amazing. I start taking some of the advice and I start getting results. It's amazing, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I can only imagine you walking and say, "No, I you know I've already done a triathlon. I I got this. It's not a big deal. I know what I'm doing. You know, uh, I've already got. You know, I went to a meeting uh, last week. I'm perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. I, I got this under control. And we don't. We we don't have it under no. control. We need other people. We we need other people Absolutely. for our ideas, and we need people to like. If I'm out running, um, I need somebody to look at my form and, and give me pointers. Because the fact is, the way I picture the way that I run probably doesn't look. You know, you probably look at me differently than the way I think that I run. And maybe you can help me with my form. Maybe tighten things up. Maybe you know, give some pointers to make it to make it easier. But again, you know, all these things are interrelated, and. Uh, I really think that there's a real correlation between sports and running and triathlon and, and recovery. Uh, a lot, uh, and, and maybe you've seen this, a lot of people in recovery dabble in ultra athletics. Have you noticed this? Sure, I have. I, and I, I think that's because there's just a real correlation between recovery mm-hmm. and endurance athletics. Um, but. I, I noticed that years ago when I would go to ultra events and, um, I, you know, if I went and crewed for somebody during ultra marathon, because I do a lot of crewing for people as well and support people during uh, Ironman triathlon. And it just amazes me because there's a language, you know, you walk around, um, you know, the dinners and the parties and the things like that. And mm-hmm. you hear people talk and there's a certain language that we use in recovery. And I'm like, oh, that guy's in recovery. And you go up and sure. you talk to him. Sure enough. But there's a lot of people in recovery. There are. In, in doing that. And, and I think it, it really truly does. It there's there is a correlation to it. I think there's a couple of different parts. One, for me anyhow, so you're doing this super long mileage or whatever it might be, you know, 30 plus miles or 50 miles or whatever it is, there's gonna be moments in there during that run. We touched on it before we got on, on the air here, and there's moments there where just you're you're just in pain and you don't want to keep going and you start questioning, why am I even here in the first place? And those days there's, you have those days in recovery um, where the pain is so great. And why am I going to keep down this, this road of recovery? Why am I even continuing to do it? But if you just keep going, that moment will pass, mm-hmm. you know, that, that urge to go out and use or go out and drink will pass. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just keep stay, just stay the course. And it's the same thing. If you're out there on, you know, at mile number, you know, 50, it's the same idea. And as bad as it hurts, it's, it's going to subside yeah. and you're going to feel better again. 
And then later on down the race, later on down next month or whatever it is in recovery, you're going to have another one of those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just keep on trucking. Yeah, you do. And you just, you just ride that wave. You just ride that wave. Yep. And that's, and, and that's what life is. Ride that wave. It's it is. And, and it's like it you had mentioned earlier that it, you know, even in recovery, we have, folks, I have bad days. Kelly, you have bad days, even in recovery. Sure. But we just don't, we just don't give into it. Ride that wave. And not every day is a bad day. Hopefully you have better, good, you know, more good days than bad days. But I, I do know this, that there's nothing in my life, you know, drinking was, was my issue. Uh, there was, there's nothing in my life that drinking is going to make better. It will certainly make it worse, but it won't make it better. Sure. And we just ride it, and you, you get up the next day, and you do it over again. But, you know, Kelly, I've really enjoyed it. And we're going to have you on again uh, sure. soon. And we're going to talk about smart recovery because I, I want somebody that uh, it is practicing smart recovery and uh, can really help the listeners implement this tool. And it is a tool. It's a fantastic tool into recovery if that's something that you choose to do. And uh, can we do that? Absolutely. I would love to. You just say when and where, and I'll make it happen. Absolutely. So, folks, thanks again. Thanks again for joining us. And I, I know you got a lot out of this because there's there's a lot of meat in this interview here, a lot of meat about uh, how recovery works and, you know, what, reco- what, what drinking does to us, the price that we pay for that. But you know what? Sometimes we're given a blessing, and I can just see that, you know, in Kelly, there's just that gratitude for having – been given that gift of life and then living life to its fullest to repay the back. Because a lot of times our amends to other people, our giving back um, in our sobriety is just living a good life. And and whoever that human being was, that that person was that gave you uh, that organ that saved your life, you know, I I am I. It's just phenomenal that you're honoring that person by living the life that you're living, mm-hmm. and that's phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. That is that is the goal. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, folks, so this episode has been sponsored again by FHE Health. And according to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. And FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. So find out more at FHEHealth.com. And as I always like to say, you know, I don't represent any group. I know I talk, you know, today we're talking about AA and smart recovery, but we don't actually represent these groups. These are just things that we do to help us get sober. If uh, these are things that can help you, obviously do that. If you um, if this does not apply to you, then just go ahead and discard what we're talking about. But if there's anything that we've said that does apply to you, take that. Maybe it will help you, and you can use that to help others as well, because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way, and we try to help to impart whatever knowledge we have gained to help you as well. So with that, please visit our Facebook site, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. Let me know how I'm doing and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about because I'd love to hear from you and you guys take care of yourselves Kelly thank you and we will talk with you next time